Well, what do you think uh, would happen if it was announced tonight that uh, next week, next Sunday, the Queen was going to arrive in town, not just in town, in town, but in town in Ingleburn? The Queen has decided that uh, this is the one part of the empire that she's never seen. And so she's coming to Ingleburn next weekend. Uh, her special ambassador has turned up and he's announced that it will be so. Uh, and she's not only coming to Ingleburn, but she's going to be coming to church here next Sunday evening at 7pm. There you go. She wants to hear the band. Uh, and uh, all the heads of state are going to be with her. Uh, you know, all, all the big names. You know, Aaron Rule from 8 o'clock, who was the ex-mayor. He's one of the big names. Uh, you know, all the, the, uh, the politicians... Uh, and everyone else. There's going to be a ticker tape parade uh, in the afternoon uh, right down Cumberland Road, and it's going to end right down there uh, at the bottom of the driveway. And so and there's going to be a red carpet laid out on top of our red driveway uh, for her to walk up, and then she can walk down our own old red carpet here. Uh, um, how would you feel about it? How would you feel about it? If that was what the announcement was tonight. Uh, I guess it would depend on who you were, whether you're a, a Republican or a monarchist. Uh, one person at 8 o'clock this morning said, it's the most ridiculous form of government that an act of passion should turn into a dynasty. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that was bitter. But at 10 o'clock, one lady was like, well, that'd be all right. Queen's coming, yeah. Um, uh, maybe you'd be excited. I think many people in our community would be excited if the Queen was going to, even if it was just kind of get a sticky beak and uh, see what she really looks like. Is she really that little? Uh, maybe she's a giant, it's just TV makes her look small. I don't know. Uh, um, maybe you'd be bored. Uh, Jason, our ministry trainee through the week, I said this is going to be the introduction. He went, oh, who cares? Like, just so what? <laughs> um, uh, maybe you'd be um, even a bit annoyed or peeved that, you're not going to get your favourite seat in church. It's not like you sit in your regular seats there or anything. Uh, you know, is someone going to take my spot? Uh, but for me, I reckon I would be in a panic. I'd just be like, ah, ah. Uh, think of all the preparations we'd have to make, the security, the bomb sweeps, you know, the police would probably be here through the week just checking everything out. Uh, we'd probably have to get the graffiti off the wall of the hall, quick smart that was put there last Sunday while we were in church. Uh, uh, would we cancel next Saturday the women's high tea? Uh, you know, because we need the fine china the day after for the Queen. Um, uh, would we rearrange the supper roster? You know, or which person would we make sure was on that night? Would it be Andrew uh, Armashaw? You know, he always brings you know packets of chips. Uh, would that be good enough? I don't know. Would we get Val Woodhouse from morning? You know, she always puts on a banquet. Uh, you know, Pat Rafferty could get the Lions Club down. Um, maybe sausage rolls for everyone. Um, what would I preach on? Would I cancel what, whatever we'd planned? You know, the next thing in Romans. Uh, a friend of mine was actually uh, involved in the last visit of the Queen to Australia and he had to preach at the uh, service of the cathedral uh, that she was attending and it was ordained what he would speak on. He would speak on, I've got it here, the health and vitality of the Commonwealth. Oh, huh? I don't know. How would you even speak on that from the Bible? How would you get the gospel into it? You know, health and vitality of the Commonwealth. Well, it sucks. And so let me tell you some other stuff. You know? <laughs> uh, would you just refuse and just do whatever you wanted? You know, kind of, 
Or whatever your feelings, if the Queen's special ambassador turned up with the news that she was coming next weekend, things would change around here, wouldn't they? And they would change dramatically. Even if it was only temporary, they would change. Uh, Tonight we commence a series that really attempts to scale the heights of one of the greatest mountains of the Bible. The letter of Paul to the Romans, the, the Christians in Rome. It's going to take us, as David said, some time to work through, about six months or so. Uh, And like any mountain climb, it's going to be hard work in places. There will be some difficult times and difficult parts. But like any good climb, it's the view at the top that really, really makes it worthwhile. That as you scale Romans and look out, it gives you an overview of the world and it gives you a picture of what everything is about that is unparalleled in all of literature. It's just a great picture of God's plans for the universe and God's plans for you. And nothing quite parallels how splendid the view from the top is. And many people in this congregation over the years have spoken to me about uh, how influential and important this particular book of the Bible has been to them. I remember Philip, uh, your brother, saying, you know, Romans 5 is just his favourite thing in the Bible. And when we gave him the opportunity to preach, it was his first sermon, it was on Romans 5. Uh, some years ago. In fact, I've got my own personal history with this book. Uh, Not only is it my favourite part of the Bible in Romans chapter 8, but I became a Christian in 1990 uh, in year 12 after a stand-up, rip-roaring argument with a man over Romans 6 verse 23, which says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. For uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I just could not believe it. And I was just trying to tear shreds off this man and, and that verse. And I was like, dead set. That cannot be right. There is no way that sin deserves death. How could it be a wage? How could we earn it? And, you know, and, and when I kind of caved in on that one, there's no way getting saved, being right with God, could be that easy that someone else has already done it for me. Just, you know, but I realised I was on the wrong team. And after two hours debating, yeah, you know, I was wrong, it was right, he was right. And I gave my life to Jesus that night because of a verse from Romans. So I became a new man. I became a Christian. I was born again that night. But it's not just that it's significant for me that we're doing this. Um, this book has had the profoundest influence on some of the greatest Christian minds and thinkers of history. Augustine, John Wesley, uh, Karl Barth. Uh, this was their book. Uh, it was as he studied and taught the acolytes who were training to be monks in Germany that Martin Luther discovered the great truth of Christianity that salvation comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And that set the world on fire and sparked the Reformation. Uh, an English poet a couple of hundred years ago, Samuel Coleridge, said, I think that the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. And John Knox said it is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. Now, how did that happen? How could it be? How did it come about that the most important theological work ever written, arguably, came from a former Jewish Pharisee named Paul who hated Christianity? He loathed it. 
He persecuted the early church with a passion. He helped kill the first Christian martyr. He went around arresting uh, Jesus' people. How did it happen that this man wrote a 22-page, 7,100-word letter that, I quote, century after century has been the flame at which one great Christian leader after another has kindled his own torch to the revival of the church and the enrichment of Christendom? How did that happen? Well, the answer at least begins in the opening verses in which Paul basically just introduces himself. He's talking about himself, which is a typical way of starting a letter in the ancient world, introducing yourself first. I mean, we write letters, you know, Dear Daisy, that's how you start, isn't it? And you end with some squiggle with your signature, you know, from Fred or, you know, whoever it is. Uh, in the ancient world, they did it the other way around. You started with yourself. It's kind of like having a letterhead, you know, broadcasting, you know, who you who you are. Um, see verse one there, an introduction. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That's who he is. That's who he's writing. He's a man on a mission. What mission? Whose mission? Well, look again at that description of himself there. Uh, first of all, he says, Paul, a servant. He's a servant. Uh, actually, that's a very polite translation of uh, what he says there uh, in the English. It's, he says, actually, that he's a slave. Paul, a slave of someone. He's someone who's bound and bought and owned by someone else, and he's obligated to work for this person. Who is he owned by? Who is the slave master? Well, he's a slave, he says, of Jesus Christ. Now, as Australians, we don't like the idea of slavery very much. It doesn't sound that appealing. Anyone want to be my personal slave? Anyone? Just volunteers? Oh, I'll feed you. No, we don't like the idea at all, do we? We don't find the idea appealing. And that's because we love the idea of freedom, by which we mean no one gets to tell me what to do. I'm the boss of me, as we saw in that T-shirt last weekend, uh, if you were here. Uh, the idea of being someone's slave is terrible. But the reality, which the letter is going to explain a bit later on, and we'll get to in chapter 6 or so, is that everyone is a slave to something. Everyone's a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin, you're trapped, you're, you're, you're an addict, there's no way out, you're doing its will rather than your own, or you're a slave to Jesus Christ which is far better, which we'll come to in a few minutes' time. And when you're saved by Jesus, you go from being the one to being the other. And Paul is putting himself squarely in that second category. And he's not just any old servant of this Jesus guy, though, as all Christians are, but he also introduces himself as as an apostle. Uh, An apostle. Now, the word apostle means something like the word ambassador. Uh, It's someone who is sent. It's a representative of someone else. Someone who's sent on a mission to represent them. An authorised spokesperson. And it's a bit of a strange title, really, because it represents humble authority. how, How can humble and authority go together? Well, it's humble because you're not representing yourself when you're an apostle. You're representing someone else. You're at the beck and call of your master. You say his message and not your own. But it's authority because you come with his word. And so to deal with you as the, as the apostle is to deal with him. And so if you acknowledge Paul, you're going to acknowledge Jesus. 
If you listen to Paul, you're listening to Jesus. And he's not just making that up. He's like, oh man, I could get them to listen to me if I just, oh, I'm an apostle of Jesus, you know, kind of thing. He's, he was decisively, physically, literally called to the task by Jesus himself. Uh, you can read about it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, when that happened. See, Paul, Paul was on the road to a town in Syria called Damascus. Okay, He was going down there specifically to arrest, hunt down, curse, persecute and kill Christians because he hated them with a loathing. He hated their lies and blasphemies that this Jesus guy is back from the dead and that they're worshipping him. Uh, and he thought that that is not on and he was bent on wiping it out. And yet on that road to Damascus, he came face to face with the risen Jesus alive again and he went, oh crap. <laughs> Um, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> uh, he couldn't help but know the truth and become a follower himself. It was a dramatic conversion, you can go and read about it, uh, and it was a dramatic moment in history and in God's plans for the world for Jesus himself had come to him to give him a job to do. He said there, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings, as well as to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Jesus handpicked him, his greatest opponent and persecutor of his people. He handpicked him, not just to be his servant, but to be his apostle. And not just any old apostle, there was already a bunch of them, but the apostle to the nations, that is, the ambassador at large. Uh, to the Gentiles uh, and the nations, is uh, that's what the word Gentiles means. Gentiles means the non-Jews in Bible terms. The whole world of people is divided into two groups, into Jews and not Jews. If you're not a Jew, you're called a Gentile. Okay, And Paul is being sent as apostle to everyone except for this small group, to everyone else in the world, Jesus' ambassador at large. And he's sent into the world to proclaim God's message. And that's the third thing that Paul says about himself, that he's been set apart for the gospel of God. It's an extraordinary phrase. Uh, the word gospel means a, an announcement or a, a pronouncement, uh, a pronouncement to the world. I mean, many people, you've probably done it yourself, have, have made your own little gospel because you're all on Facebook, aren't you? Every time you post a status update, you're, you're making an announcement to the world, or at least to a little part of your world, your 50 friends or whatever you've got, you know, unless you're really popular, you've got 100, 1,000, there you go. Um, you know, many people put gospels in the newspaper and on Facebook, you know, that they're engaged, or like Ben and Steph, yes, they got married, yay, you know, up at Lura, um, uh, when they have a baby. Uh, it's a statement. It's a declaration of important news, at least important to them and important to grandma. Uh, although, you know, in terms of world importance, a Facebook post about my children or your children is pretty small news, except for, you know, the rels, except for Catherine's baby. And that's, yeah, that's going to be worldwide news. <laughs> but there are big gospels. There are big announcements. Uh, four years ago, the whole country, not just ours, but, but the whole Commonwealth, heard the news that, that a baby had been born. Baby George was born to William and Kate. Uh, were you excited by that news? 
well, it's big news because that's your future king, that little baby. Uh, now, that doesn't really affect us at the other end of the world, but that's the future king of Australia. But what is the gospel of God? What's the important announcement that God's got for the world? That he sent his special ambassador into the nations of the world to proclaim. Well, that's what this book of Romans is about. Here in this letter is the greatest and clearest articulation of God's announcement to the world. It's a letter that's not so much written to take on specific problems in in a particular church, like, say, the letter to the Corinthian church, where there's all sorts of moral failings and problems and ethical dilemmas going on, and they've got questions. He's like, all right, you bullheads, issue one, this is the answer. Issue two, boom, here we go. Issue three, you stop doing that. (laughs) It's not like that at all. This is a, a treatise, an essay on what God is like and what God has done and what he is doing in the world and what he will do in the future. And in particular, it concerns his son, Jesus. What about God's son? Well, we're given a glimpse into just how big this message about Jesus is in what looks like just a tiny little summary in the next two or three sentences at the start. And he says three things. He says, The announcement that I've got was actually planned and it was promised long beforehand. He says it's about the kingship of Jesus over the world and it's a message that means everything's got to change. It demands change and not just a week of special preparations as if the Queen were coming to Ingleburn, but radical change in every life from now on. Let me just show you those three things. Uh, first thing he says about this gospel was planned and promised long before he was ever spent to speak it. Verse 2, Paul set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is, God pre-promised, not just weeks before, not just years before or decades before, but centuries beforehand. I mean, every promise you make ahead of time, don't you? You know, I promise you, tonight's supper is going to be fantastic. It's as if the Queen's coming to town. You should see it. It's being prepared right now. I can see Jackie Collis out there. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, there's a promise uh, beforehand. Every promise. Is, but this was made centuries beforehand by God, by, through the prophets whose words make up the Old Testament. That is to say, the gospel of God is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. That is, Christianity is not a new religion. It's the fulfilment of an old religion. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. What he was preparing and promising then, he fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And that has profound implications, just that statement. It it says something about history. You know, history is not just a series of accidents and power struggles and, you know, this nation going to war against that nation. It is going somewhere. Because God has been making it go somewhere. He's planned it beforehand. It says something about God, uh, not least of which God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. Uh, He is an unstoppable being and no one can get in the way of his plans. Hundreds of years go by. Uh, The Jews wonder if their saviour, their messiah is ever going to come. They go through horrendous suffering and terrible difficulty. Uh, And then God acts and the promise is fulfilled. 
That means God can be trusted. It may look as if he's forgotten his promises, but he doesn't forget. He always keeps his word. And here's at least one fundamental reason to believe his gospel now that it has been announced to the world through his ambassador. But what is this announcement which has taken all these centuries to fulfil? Well, verse 3, it's the gospel regarding his son, the kingship in particular of his son. That's what the gospel is about. The son of God who is now reigning as the king. That's what it's about. That's who it's about. That is the gospel is not first and foremost about you and it's not first and foremost about me. It's not about how God wants to meet all our desires. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's not even about how you can find true spirituality, although it says something to all those things, but it's not about those things. There are implications. The message is about God's Son. And specifically, it's the official announcement that he has been enthroned as the king. Because if we knew our Old Testaments well, we know that the Son of God is is not a description of the second person of the Trinity. It's actually a title of the King of Israel. It's a badge. It's It's a title. It's a title of God's King who would come to reign, and not just over the nation of Israel, but over the whole universe, and not just do it for the number of years of his life, but forever, an eternal reign over all peoples. That's what God promised in that first reading that we had from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, If you weren't here before we sang the first song, because we're doing things out of order because we're crazy. (laughs) The prophet Nathan came to King David. Uh, David wanted to build God a house, and God said, you think I need a house from you? I'm going to build you a house, buddy. In fact, you're going to have a son, a descendant, who I'm going to call my son, the son of God, and he is going to rule forever. He's the son whose throne I'm going to establish Uh, he's going to rule on David's throne over David's people, but not just David's people, all people. And that becomes one of the great themes of the Old Testament, that David's king is going to come and rule as the son of God. You see it in Psalm 2. You see it in Psalm 89. You see it in Psalm 110. You see it in Psalm 132. You find it in Isaiah 11 in Jeremiah 23, in Ezekiel 34, in Ezekiel 37, to name but a few places. Over and over and over again, the Old Testament prophets say that the son of David is coming. You better watch out. The son of David is going to turn up. So we're supposed to be looking for the real son of David, who who is going to be the son of God. Back to Romans chapter 1, verse 3. Paul, the ambassador of God, set apart for the gospel, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David. And all of a sudden, if you've got your Old Testament glasses on, that's profound. It's incredibly important that Jesus was in the line of David for it was only a son of David who could fulfill God's promise. But it's not just about human connections back to the throne of the great King David. But furthermore, he says, through the spirit of holiness, through the Holy Spirit, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He was enthroned as the King by being raised from the dead. There were many sons of David, some who ruled, some who didn't. Some were good, some were disasters. 
But none of them were the Son of God in power. None of them were the Son of God raised from the dead. They all lived and they reigned for a few years and they died and they were buried with their fathers. And as each one died and was buried and you kind of look at the grave, you think, that's not the one. That's not him. He's a goner. Uh, That's not what God promised. Because the expectation was that the Son of God would come in power. Not the power of armies, not the power of political will. He would come by the power of resurrection. The Old Testament prophets predicted that Christ would come to his power by his rising from the dead to take his throne. And that's what the gospel is about. It's the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God in power. That Jesus, the man descended from David, has conquered death and he reigns as God's eternal king. And so Paul summarises his message at the end of verse 4 there in four simple words. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is Lord. By his fulfilment of God's promise, by being the descendant of David, by his resurrection, he is the Lord. And he is the Lord of all. He is the Lord not only of the living, but Lord of the dead. He's Lord not only of this age, but he's the Lord of the next age. He's the Lord not only of this world, but of the world to come. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And so he is the ruler of all nations everywhere of all time. Now, the nations don't necessarily want to follow him, do they? I mean, the ancient nations, they were happy to follow the Baals or the Greek gods, or the Roman gods, or the Incan gods, human sacrifices and things like that. Today, the nations don't want to follow Jesus, do they? They don't want him to be the king. They want to follow Muhammad, or they want to follow Buddha, or Confucius, or Krishna, or maybe if they're dumb, Karl Marx. But Jesus is their Lord and God, whether they want to follow him or not. For if Jesus has risen from the dead, He has received all glory and power and authority to rule all nations for all times. He is the judge of all people everywhere. He doesn't rise from the dead to take the Israeli portfolio in God's government. He rises uh, to the portfolio of all government in the kingdom of heaven. And he rises to be the king of all kings and the lord of all lords, the ruler of all peoples. It's for all people to know, therefore, that there is a man who is a king in heaven. Jesus Christ, our Lord. But it's not quite enough to know it. There's a personal implication for every person, therefore. Every member of every nation of the entire world, whether they're from Tajikistan or Turkey, whether they're confused like Arnold Schwarzenegger about what country he comes from, whether it's Australia or Austria, whether they're from Indonesia or India, it's in verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, from all the nations of all the world, to the obedience that comes from faith. What is the implication of of this Jesus being the king of all? The implication is you've got to bow the knee. He's the king. You've got to trust him. You've got to obey him. And that's what Paul was sent to call people to do, to announce the arrival of God's king in power and to call people to bow the knee to this king, to swear fealty to him, to give their lives to him, to come and be his servants too. 
See, there has been a regime change in the universe and therefore there has to be a regime change in my life. Now, do you believe that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God in all power and authority and he's ruling all the nations? Because if that's who Jesus is, how are you going to act? What are you going to do? If you say, well, gee, that's interesting. Yeah, big whoop, the coin's coming to town next week. <laughs> who cares? You know, like, thanks for telling me about Jesus and then walking away. Well, you don't really believe it, do you? That's rejecting it. Because if you really believe that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then the fact that the Queen might turn up here in Ingleburn next week is nothing. Because Jesus is the King here today. And you know who these people are who are sitting here? They're not the heads of state. They're far more important than that. These are the, the people of the King. And the Queen, well, he's her King too. You think her turning up would create changes around here, albeit temporarily? The king of kings has arrived, and so things must change. They have to change permanently. So I've got three questions for you in conclusion. All right? Three questions. Number one, is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Frankly, He is whether or not you acknowledge it because he's everyone's Lord, like it or not. But the answer is sometimes no in the sense that sometimes, well, I haven't actually bowed the knee to him and sworn fealty and trust him. And so you know what that means? If that was the case for me, it means I'm still in rebellion against him. Don't be like that, friends. He died to pay for you, as this letter is going to go and explain, that you might be forgiven. He is risen from the dead. And he's in control not only of this life but of the one to come. And one day you are going to meet him. You are going to stand face to face with him and it will not be a meeting amongst equals. He will decide what to do with you as the king and the judge of the universe. So you need to meet him before that enforced appointment comes in your death. Don't leave it till you die to meet him because that's too late. It will not end well. Meet him now in this life that you might rejoice when you do meet him in that lifetime rather than have to exist in fear and horror. Is he your Lord? Second question. Are you committed to him being the Lord of all? Because he's not just the king for those of us who come to church. He is the king overall. And he's going to call this whole world, every person in every nation, in every age to account. And it ought to concern us that so many people around our world, so many people in our own country, so many people in our own community, so many people in our own lives do not know him and have not bowed the knee to him for their sake and for his. For coming to him is the only way, as he says in verse 7, to receive grace and peace from God. The people who are not concerned for the lost are generally part of the lost themselves and they can't see it. The next few weeks are going to be incredibly good weeks to invite people you know along to church with you, to hear about his incredible grace and mercy, the incredible power of God's son Jesus, that they might give their lives to him. Um, This is the book that at least this man here became a Christian through. Uh, it's part of God's words. It's going to touch lives. Third question, 
Are you willing to listen to Paul as he unfolds the implications of the gospel in the next few chapters? As he unravels them all for us, as we climb up and we see more and more of what God's huge plans are for the world and what his plans are for us, as we get to stand on top of this mountain and to see and understand from God's perspective why this world is in the mess that it's in and what God's done about it and what he is calling us to. Are you ready for Paul? Are you ready for Romans? Because that's the rest, well, that's the next six months. I hope you're ready. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks for centuries before he even came of the your king, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it has been fulfilled, that he reigns in power and glory, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Father, we beg of you that he might help us to understand just who this is we're dealing with, uh, to submit to him as the king. If we've got questions or doubts, we pray that you might help us to work out in the coming weeks if they're true uh, and, and what, what is right. Father, we pray that you might be at work in us and amongst us as we study this profound book that you have given through your ambassador, Paul. We thank you for it and we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his honour. Amen.